Well, good evening, table friends. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Galatians chapter 5. We'll start there. Uh, And then we're going to flip on over very quickly to 1 Timothy 3. And if this is first time in a long time or first time with us, we're in the midst of a series of talks on the fruit of the Spirit. And the the series is called Nine Items or Less. And the idea has been that uh, for many of us, life is like a shopping cart. You know, we go to the grocery store. Y'all are all young adults. You're getting food. You walk in. You go, hey, man, I just got to get the essentials. I'm on a budget. I just got to get the things I need in life. And so we've been using this metaphor through the series of talks that, you know, your life is like the shopping cart. And the fruit of the Spirit are these essential virtues you need in your life, uh, in your character. They're the nine things that we put into the basket of our lives. And really, they're all hanging on one super fruit, which is love. We've looked at the other eight in light of what love is. If you are curious about the subject, I would encourage you to go to our podcast, uh, At the Table Orlando. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you can look it up in Apple Tunes, The Table Orlando, or you can go to our Instagram, At the Table Orlando. You can find the podcast link, and you can listen to them all. They're really excellent. Um, uh, our team has done a really great job with them. But tonight, the one we're going to look at is the very last one mentioned. Uh, in Galatians 5, it's, um, we know that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. If you know this, say it out loud with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. I missed one. See, I was testing you. Isaac was like, that was mine last week. Uh, gentleness and self-control. Tonight, we're going to talk about self-control. Uh, and here's why. Self-control functions throughout the New Testament. These are something Paul talks about holistically and says self-control is this key characteristic of all leaders, anyone who would lead in the church, anyone who steps into volunteering, anyone who serves in a high capacity, but especially of our pastors. It's a, it's a key character function of those who would be overseers or shepherds over a local congregation. And so to set up why we're going to talk about pastoral ministry in light of the fruit of the Spirit. Let me just kind of tell you this story. Um, I don't know about you, but growing up with me, I saw and experienced a lot of bad leaders. Okay? And I was just thinking about all the bad leaders I saw in my life. And for me, uh, leadership is a passion of mine. And so early on before I knew this, when I would have bad leadership, it just, I could just, oh, it just, just rubbed me the wrong way. It's like nails on a chalkboard. I couldn't stand it. It just was, it frustrated me. Um, and many of them were teachers or coaches because I played sports. And so it was kind of, this was my early experience with leadership. Uh, and so I can remember specifically a bad coach and a bad teacher. A bad coach, uh, I had this basketball coach when I was in high school. And he was at that time in Texas, uh, what I would consider to be a reverse racist, given um, uh, the American landscape. Meaning he preferred African Americans and um, privileged them over and against uh, white Americans. And so on our basketball team, we had this guy who was seven feet, feet tall, okay? He was seven feet tall, which if you know anybody who's seven feet tall, that's an advantage in basketball, uh, right? I don't know if you know that, right? It's important to be tall. He could literally, you could throw the ball up to him and he could turn around and just go, without jumping, just go and put it in like the basket or lay it up or something like that. And my coach would not play him. There were no seven feet tall people in our district, There were very few seven feet tall people in the whole of the state of Texas in high school basketball. And we had one. This is a market advantage, okay, if you're thinking about this. And and my coach would not play him because he was white. And so there would be, there'd be these four, like four foot, half tall, uh, 
uh, black students out there playing and this seven foot tall white guy on the bench with his knees up to his cheeks and people in the crowd would just be like, hey, we're losing right now. Um, maybe put in the seven foot tall guy. I don't know. Like that seems like when, but he wouldn't do it. And I remember on the basketball team just looking at that going, that seems like bad leadership. Like that's just, that's a no brainer there. In school, uh, I had, in college, in fact, one time, I had this professor who missed two-thirds of our classes. Like, it's one thing for us to not show up to classes. You guys know this. It's another thing for the teacher not to show up for classes. Two-thirds of our classes she didn't show up for. It was a marketing class. Um, we would do the whole thing where it's like, hey, five minutes if they have a bachelor's, 10 minutes if they have a master's, and then 15 minutes if they have a PhD. Do you know that rule? If your professor has a PhD, you have to wait 15 minutes. They only have a master's. You learn that stuff up front, right? In the syllabus, you're like, what's your credentialing? They say master's degree, 10 minutes, right? That's all the wait. If they have a bachelor's, you got five minutes, you're out, right? So she, did, she had a master's, so we would wait 10 minutes. She would never show up. So finally, at one point, the head of this de- department came in and sat down with us and basically lectured us on how we're wrong to be frustrated because she didn't show up to classes, right? And I just remember thinking that's incredibly poor leadership, not only on my professor who didn't show up, but also on the department head who told us we were wrong for being frustrated. And I've, I, th- that kind of stuff drives me nuts. It probably drives you nuts too. But here's the reason why I know it drives me nuts, and it's why it drives you guys nuts too. It's because you've also had good leadership, and you know what good leadership is. And when you experience bad leadership, you go, man, this is bad leadership because I've had good leadership before and it's way better than what I'm experiencing right now. I had a coach one time, my cross-country coach, my senior year of uh, high school, was an amazing cross-country coach. And I did far better in cross-country than I had ever done, primarily because of his leadership. He just invented all these really cool ways to help us train and help us get better. And we would set objectives and targets. And um, he, would, he had this old Jeep, and we would go on these runs through this park, and he would ride along in his Jeep with us at the pace we needed to run at. And he would just tell us, hey, you're slowing down the pace to get better. I was like, yeah, that's really cool. Sometimes if we didn't run fast enough, he would drive behind us. He's like, I'm going to nudge you. But he didn't, right? Because that would be child abuse. But um, yeah, but he was just really cool and really encouraging, and we did really well. I remember an accounting professor I had in uh, college who walked in the first day and just was like, class, half of you are going to fail my class and half of you are going to pass, and it's because the people who pass listen to me and the people who fail, they don't listen to me. So if you want to pass my class and make 100, just listen to me. And I was like, okay, I'll take you up on it. And I had a great class, and I did very well in that class. And afterwards, she was like, you're so good at accounting, you should be an accountant. And I was like, that sounds fun, but sorry, I think I'm going to be a pastor. And she was like, understood. Um, But she was super encouraging. And That coach experience and that teacher experience, I remember it because they were great leaders, and as a result, I had a great experience in their classes. We know this to be true. Good leadership means a good experience, no matter if you're in a class or a group or you're at church, you're in a small group, whatever. When you have good leaders, you have a good experience, and you look back fondly on those experiences with just great joy and misty eyes. You're like, oh man, I long, you're singing boys to men. I long for, you know, you know, yesterday and I want to go back to the end of the road and just all these, like this, the emotions come in and you're just like, this is so amazing. Good leadership means good experiences. Bad leadership means bad experiences. The reason you had such a terrible experience maybe in that math class is because you had a bad teacher. And because he or she was a bad leader, you had a bad experience. And now today you're like, I hate math. I don't do math, like at all. Like when people want to Venmo me, I'm just like, ah, just send me the thing and I'll Venmo you back. I don't do math, right? When you calculate receipt, uh, tip at meals, you're just like, ah, I don't do math, right? Why? Because you had a bad teacher. Or maybe for you, this bad leadership, bad experience has been a church thing. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You have a bad pastor. 
You have a bad small group leader. You have a bad Sunday school teacher. You have a bad student leader, right? You have a bad experience with church, and you're less motivated to attend additional events or to participate in additional things. If you have good leadership in the church, man, you are greatly motivated to attend additional events and additional things. And so because of this principle here, I want us to just ask a bigger philosophical question today and let Scripture answer it. And it's this. It's this question here. How do we know when someone is a good leader for the church? How do we know if good leadership means good experience and bad leadership means bad experience, then I want to know what does good leadership look like? If you guys ever move away from Orlando, and I'm not asking you to, I love you, please stay here forever. But if God for some reason moves you elsewhere across the globe and you have to find yourself in a position of looking for a home church, it's a new home church experience. If you've never done this before, how will you know when you sit in the pew or the chair and you look at the guy on stage, how will you know if he's a good leader? How will you know if your pastors are good pastors? This is a critical thing for you to be able to understand. And let me just say this up front. I hope and pray I'm a good pastor to you guys, and I'm not asking you guys to like clap or anything like that. I'm just saying, I hope that I can be a good leader for y'all, but I don't want you to evaluate future leaders based on me because I don't think I should be the standard for pastoral leadership. I think the Bible should be the standard for pastoral leadership. It's an objective authority on the matter. And so I want to seek to answer this question. How will we know that there's a good leader in the church? By looking at Scripture. So if you have your phones or uh, Bibles open, flip on over, swipe on over to 1 Timothy 3. We're going to look at the first seven verses there in 1 Timothy 3, and I'm going to read extensively from the English Standard Version. Let's jump in. Here we go. Paul is writing to the, the church there that Timothy's pastoring, and he's, gonna, he's basically telling them, hey, we've established this church. It's growing. We need to raise up some new pastors. And Timothy has probably written to Paul and said, well, how do we know when there's good leadership? How can we identify the good leaders in our congregation? So Paul's just given him very straightforward qualifications on this. And here's what he says. The saying is trustworthy. So he's saying, hey, you can trust me here. Uh, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now let me stop there. Overseer here. It's a term that means shepherd or elder or pastor. But the idea is someone who is um, disproportionately responsible for the health of the congregation, the senior leadership. And in our situation, what we would call that is a pastor, How, the, the, the calling of a pastor of the church. This is different from a minister in our context. This is different from a director or a leader. This is someone who is a leader of leader of leaders in a local church context. Around here, our senior pastor, David Youth, is my pastor. Danny DeArmas, our senior associate pastor, is my pastor. These are the guys who basically function as overseers for the whole, but they also charge anybody else in a subgroup as being a pastor over that group. So I am technically the pastor over young adults. And so we're just asking the person at the top of the organizational chain here who's disproportionately responsible for the health of that situation, what is the qualification there? And Paul is saying, here's what the qualifications are. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, pastor, shepherd, elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So very quickly, in light of all of that, I want to give us, like, boil all this down into four maybe super qualifications for a pastor. And I want to walk through each one and provide some examples. So you guys still with me? We good? We have a teaching posture. We're ready to take notes? Okay, here we go. All right. Four qualifications of a pastor, and they're just my organizational principles. I think they look like this. Number one, steady character. Steady character. Look back over that if you have your Bibles over all the character traits that are there. Over all the fruits of the Spirit we see there. Right? Here, I'll just kind of read it. An overseer must be above reproach, meaning um, uh, if this is the standard... They try to live a little bit above the standard. They go, I know what the standard is here. I know what people are going to hold people to. I want to I go the extra mile and just be a little bit above that. Not legalistically, but I just, in all things, I just want to make sure that I am um, of the highest character and consistency and ethic, uh, ethical value in this particular area. So they're above reproach. So uh, this isn't the person who goes five miles under the speed limit, right? It's definitely not the person who goes 20 miles over the speed limit, uh, it's the person who goes, okay, if speeding is 70, I'm going to go 70. But if it's a rainy day and I can't see anything, I'm going to drop down and I'm going to go like 35 or 40. Not because I'm trying to be a jerk, but because I'm trying to assess what is safe and available and I'm trying to live that way. Above reproach, okay? Uh, above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, there's the fruit of the Spirit. Respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Look at all of these Traits, this is someone who has very steady character, meaning the character on Tuesday is the same as the character on Thursday. It's the same as the character on Sunday. It's the same as the character on Monday. You, 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 what it's guarding against are those leaders who raise up that on Sunday they have their Sunday face on and they have their Sunday character on. But then you see them on Saturday night, and they have their Saturday night character, and you're like, mm, one of these things is not like the other, right? And we all, we're laughing because we all know people that way, right? And we're not in judgment, we're not mad, but Paul's trying to talk about there being some measure of consistency. Who you are on stage is who you are off stage. Who you are when you're leading your life group is who you are when you're not leading your life group. And what that is is someone of the highest above reproach character at all times. They have consistent, steady character. Number two, They've got steady family, we're applicable. Now this is something uh, that maybe needs a little bit of unpacking here. Keep in mind, these are all qualifications, not disqualifications. In other words, Paul is saying, guard against this thing that would disqualify you by setting this qualification in place. Paul is trying to guard against someone in this time period who would have like multiple wives. In other words, they might have a wife, but they might have a girlfriend somewhere else. There might be kind of multiple things going on there. The term there is a one-woman man. They are married to one woman. If they're married, they're married to one woman. They're faithful to their wives, okay? So this does not preclude single people from being pastors. Paul is saying, but if they're married, they're a one-woman guy. They're not practicing kind of uh, polygamy. <laughs> they're, they're not, uh, you know, it, it, you guys know what the deal is. We've seen plenty of pastors out there who are like, I love my wife, I love my wife, I love my wife. And then you find out there have been like girlfriends along the way. Paul's trying to guard against that. He says, hey, if they have family, they are consistent. If they have kids, they manage their kids well. Why? He's trying to guard against the guy who's really good on stage, puts on the nice face, but then goes home and his kids are a mess and his family's a mess. You guys know this, right? Uh, the pastor's kids are like the worst kids in the world. 
And all pastors have kids who are their own beings and da, da, da. My kids are here right now and my son's laying down right there. So <laughs> some of you are like, disqualify him, um, right? But no, what you're talking about is the pastor who you go, hey, your kids are a little bit out of line. And the pastor's like, well, I can't do anything. <laughs> so let's talk about Genesis. You're like, no, I don't want to talk about Genesis. I want to talk about how terrible your kids are like, and why you're not leading, why you're permitting them to continue to operate in unhealthy ways. He's like, oh, I don't know, man. They're trying to prevent against kind of doofus pastors who go home and they don't love their wives. And they don't love their kids. They're not managing things well. You can know the difference, y'all. When you go over to someone's house, because pastors practice hospitality, they invite you over. And you can see where pastors are trying hard, but their kids are really stubborn because the kids are smart and they're leaders. And you're just like, oh, I got to deal with that later. Versus the guy who's just like out to lunch. Um, if you guys have ever seen Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 movie version, anybody in the room seen Pride and Prejudice? Am I dating myself? My wife is like, that's me. It's my favorite movie. Okay. The four of you who've seen it, right? There's just this one character named Mr. Collins. And no matter what you're talking about, Mr. Collins, he's a pastor. He's just like, oh, I don't know. Well, anyway, so in Genesis, what was going on is da 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 And like, Mr. Collins, like, you know, this cow is on fire outside your house. Oh, my. So in Genesis 4, right? And he's just completely unaware of what's going on in his family or anything else. He's got these kind of low social skills. And Paul's saying, hey, we got to guard against that because that's bad leadership. And if they're bad leaders in the home, guess what? They're going to be bad leaders in the church because the church is the home of the people. And so if they have wife, if they have kids, they need to be good managers. They need to be steady in their family. Number three, steady faith. What they believe on Monday, they believe on Sunday, they believe on Tuesday. The core of their doctrine is consistent and they believe it. They they live out what they believe by living out what they believe. The, they, their belief is in Jesus and they're taking consistent steps towards him, okay? What this is guarding against in terms of their faithfulness is just the people who are, I, I don't know how to describe this other than to say, like they'll, they'll rail against the horrors of alcohol. Like Bible says you shouldn't drink alcohol and you shouldn't get drunk and it's terrible. And they'll just kind of talk about this. My dad has this great story. Let me just go ahead and flip into the story because it's much more clear than the one I was going to tell. Um, so my dad had this cousin. And my dad wasn't a Christian growing up. And they would, um, they would do roofing together. And his cousin was a pastor. And so they would sit on the roof and he would just tell my dad for eight hours in the hot sun in Texas while they're roofing, right, about the horrors of alcohol. Just alcohol is terrible. It's bad. It's awful. But he would say, they should just take all that beer in the store and throw it into the lake, bud. And my dad would just be like, okay, Cletus, uh, whatever, man, like, cool. And then they would leave and they would get in a truck and they would go to the convenience store and Cletus would go buy a pack of beer and they would go celebrate a hard day's work by drinking beer. And Cletus would be like, man, this beer is good, bud. And my dad would just be like, whatever, Cletus. Uh, and you just see this inconsistency in the way he lived. Like his theology says one thing and his belief, his practice says something else. And what Paul's saying is, hey, you'll know them because that's the same thing. Not only in terms of their character, but in what they teach, they live that out. Whatever they preach, they live that out in the way uh, they practice their faith. They have steady faith. And finally... The one, thing that the, the one thing that's an ability here, notice this. All of this is character stuff. Consistent character, love your wife, whatever. And the only thing that's an ability thing is able to teach. Did you notice that? So, yeah, they've got to have good character. They've got to be an internal person. They're be like, right? But the thing that separates just kind of general leaders in the church from a pastor is ability to teach or ability to teach with authority. They have steady teaching. They know their Bible. They know their theology. 
They know their talking points. They can make it practical. And the vision Paul has here is the person who is not only able to teach from the stage, but he's able to teach in a one-on-one setting, and he's able to teach in a one-on-twelve setting, and he's able to teach in a classroom setting. He's able to teach in a small group. He's able to teach at a conference. He's able to teach on stage. Wherever you put this person, they can just go, oh, let me teach. Let me take this concept here and then make it applicable to where your life is right now. They are able to teach. They are steady in their teaching. We all know people, right? Uh, We've been to churches where it seems like the only way they've evaluated their pastors is by getting them to get up and speak. Have you been in a church where this has been the case? Um, In fact, in our tradition in the Southern Baptist Convention, the way that you call a pastor to come to your church if you're without a senior pastor is you invite him to come and preach. And then based on his one-time, one-shot sermon, everyone goes thumbs up, thumbs down, right? And this is very true in a lot of our churches. And I remember being a young Christian growing up thinking this is very odd because that doesn't tell me anything about this person. That tells me this person has one really great message and delivered it. And this is a tried and true message he performed, and he, he was able to perform this. And we were like, sure, that sounds great. And we know plenty of churches, because we've been a part of them, where they hired some guy based on one message, and he preached it, and it was really good, and he performed it well, only to find he's got terrible character, and he doesn't manage his family, and he's really inconsistent in his faith. But you know what he can do? He can get up, and he can perform a sermon. And Paul is saying, get that out of here. That is bad leadership. I don't care what that guy does on stage. What I care about is not if he's able to preach, not if he's able to perform, if in every interaction he has when called upon to teach and to teach with authority, to talk about the authority of the truth of scripture, that person can open their mouth and articulate an original thought about the Bible and can point you to the Bible and say chapter and verse, this is how it all works out. And they can not only give you that information, but they can begin to then apply it, massage it into your life where you live right now and move from information to transformation. And they can do that in every environment. They are steady in what they teach. So these are the four key characteristics, according to Doug, uh, but according to Paul in the Bible, right? (laughs) This is what I see to be true, and I've been thinking about the best way to describe it. And so I have this... uh, I have this BOSU ball here. You guys ever use a BOSU ball before? Super cool. It's, it's, a, it's like the um, exercise ball right here, and it's got a flat surface. And so, oh, hold on. I had knee, when I had knee surgery, I had to do this a lot, right? Okay, because it helps you work things. So see how it's kind of wobbly, right? Okay, all right. Oh, nope, hold on. Whew, okay, here we go. Hold on. Oh, just kidding. Okay, right? So here I am. And... When I look at scripture here about the qualifications of a pastor, and I just think about it. As people come to churches, they get saved, they get baptized, they go to like a new discipleship class or a program, and they, they get into a life group, and they, you know, kind of start hosting, and then they start serving, they start leading the life group, and they start moving up the pathway, right? The thing, the primary thing Paul's asking you to look for are people who are steady, Right? They're not like, oh, I'm going to get off. Hold on one second. Oh, man. Oh. Right? They're people who are steady. And when the winds of life go up and down, they're steady. And when you come to them and you throw all your drama at them, they don't freak out. They, they're steady. And the thing that they're steady in is in their character and in their family lives 
and in their faith or their faithfulness and in their teaching. Even when you bring them something really, really hard that's going on in your life, you're sitting across the coffee table from them, you're like, this terrible thing just happened to me and I'm sad. They're not like, that sounds terrible. I'm getting off here. Excuse me. Right? They are steady. And in every season, in the ups and downs of the church life, in the ups and downs of American life, they are steady. And they're steady in their character and their family and in their faith and in their teaching. Not because they're necessarily the greatest person in the world, although they have certainly demonstrated some character in their lives and they've demonstrated this consistently. They are steady because they are steady because they're standing on the steadiness of Jesus. They know that Jesus will be faithful. And they have committed their lives to standing on him. And he is making them steady. And as I think about this, I can think of no better example in our fellowship right now than my good friend Isaac Trevino, who is steady in his faith and steady in his teaching and steady in his family, Lord willing, it's coming, and, <laughs> and steady in his character. And so here's what I want to do right now, if you guys are with me. I want to invite Isaac to come up here because I want to turn our attention to encouraging him because we have observed all of this in his life, and I want to begin the process of ordaining him. And as he comes up, I want you to enjoy this beautiful slideshow that his parents sent me. <laughs> <laughs> 